standard issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to talk to you about this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. Now, the British Empire has been a hot topic for centuries, but in recent years there have been increasing debates about the impact of that empire. Writer, podcaster and advertising exec, and also one of my faves, Shalina Jamahamad, was struck by how few resources there were when she was trying to explain those debates to her children. And so she wrote her own book about it, The Story of Now, Why We Need to talk about the British Empire, which is for children aged 10 and above. This week, I chat to her about why understanding the British Empire is so important in understanding the world around us, why the conversations about it need to extend beyond those around slavery and colonisation, and why children need to understand those conversations as well. I make no secret of the fact that I think Shalina is brilliant and that I thoroughly enjoy interviewing her. I do hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed our chat. I am joined by writer, advertising exec and uh, award-nominated podcaster, Shalina Jamahabid. Shalina, thank you very much for coming back to talk to me again. I have been waiting a whole year to come back and talk to you, Jan. You are here today to talk to me about your new book, Story of Now, Let's Talk About the British Empire. Shalina, let's talk about the British Empire. Tell us about the book, please. The book is written for children aged 10 plus, although the plus does mean all of us grown-ups can read it too. Mm -hmm. And it was written to help children make sense of the world that we live in today and who they are and their place in it. In 2020, when the statue of Edward Colston fell, I was with my kids who are now 12 and 8, and I wanted to give them some things to read to try and explain what had happened and why. And to my complete and utter shock, in 2020, there was nothing that I could give them to read that was written for children about the British Empire. And I find this utterly gobsmacking because the British Empire, as a fact, was the biggest empire ever in history. Mm. So how is it that my children were bringing home books on the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians, and yet there was nothing I could give them to talk about the British Empire? And that's when I decided to write Story of Now, which is standing in the shoes of children to understand the world today by looking back at the British Empire. So there's some like beautiful pictures in the book. The cover is really amazing and it's illustrated by Laura Greenan. Do you want to tell me a little bit about, about the visual elements of it? The starting point for the book is the story of now and the contemporary setting where we are in. And so when we were looking at the artwork and the cover, we wanted that to reflect a contemporary story. So we didn't want to recycle the pageantry and the iconography and you know those kind of historic symbols and stereotypes of the British Empire. And so the cover is this absolutely gorgeous visualization of a conversation and trying to give a new visual identity of how we talk about the British Empire so that it feels like it's fresh and for today. Mm. And, you know, I love that we have the faces and, you know, there are lots of little things to spot on the cover if people have a look like we've got the shipping routes and, you know, that kind of playful illusion that children really love, which I fell in love with, with the two faces and the kind of negative, the, the negative space and the speech bubbles on the back. And we took that through into the marketing of it as well. So, you know, posing really unexpected and playful questions like, 
you know, what can Pajama and T tell us about the British Empire? You know, what was in Wembley before Wembley Stadium? I'm not going to give the answer to that. You're going to have to read the book to find out. <laughs> uh, it is quite interesting, though. You know, what can we learn from Francis Drake about space travel? You know, would you steal to to solve a health pandemic, which is one of the things we're, we're talking about here. So we wanted to really change the framing of the conversation to not something that's onerous and moralistic, but thought provoking and fresh and of the moment for children. It doesn't necessarily seem like the most obvious topic of children's book. Why is it important to talk to our kids about this? I believe that one of the greatest things we can do for children is to help them understand who they are and what's helped shape their story and to understand how the world around them has come to be so that ultimately as they grow up, they can understand the interaction between what shapes them and how that fits into the world around them. But also so they can have really great conversations about who they are with their friends and peers and their families so that we can create the kind of society where people can say, well, this is my experience, what's yours? And they can then have a respectful interaction between them. And we simply can't do that if we don't understand what's shaped who we are and our countries. And so when I set out writing the book, it actually begins with me telling my story and how I didn't know anything about what shaped my life. And as I learned about that and I talked to people, and I tried to piece together the different bits of my story. It helped me to understand how I come to be who I am, but it also helped me to understand how that relates to other people. And it feels like to me in the grown-up world, we're really missing that. So can we give that to our children so they have a new way of seeing the world and having those conversations. Because you make the point that wherever we stand, we all have a relationship to the British Empire. And I've never really thought about it in terms of myself because I'm white British. But then, well, my grandma was Welsh. My grandpa was Scottish. Like, those are all part of it. Those countries were colonised by the English. But there's a lot of inherited wealth there which has come about as a result of the British Empire, right? So... Do you think that is sort of important for children to understand as well? So you're absolutely right about the starting point of who is this conversation for and who's in it and who does it matter mm. to? Because I'm East African Indian, so I come, my heritage is from places that were colonised by the British Empire. And so clearly, I tell my story in the book of how my great-great-grandfather left Gujarat, which is on the west side of India, and travelled to East Africa in today what is Tanzania as part of the British taking over East Africa. How many others came as part of indentured labour, which was the follow-on from slavery. My great-grandfather came for business opportunities. There was a famine in India. And another grandfather of mine actually went to Aden, which is in today's Yemen, because that was a port that the British set up to be strategic in the Middle East in order to allow for shipping and goods to travel through. And then because my 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 family was British overseas subjects, my parents decided in the 60s that actually they were going to come to London, which to them was just part of, you know, this wider Britain that mm. they had been part of. And I think we are starting to hear a lot more stories like that. Mine's quite unusual, but there are communities um, that have all these complex stories but that conversation about the British Empire always strikes me, seems to be something that only black and brown people are supposed to have, mm. that it's supposedly only something matters to that. 
And one of my big intentions when I set out to write the book was to be able to talk to children, whatever their background, across Britain and around the world to say, actually, it's really had an impact on your life. So, you know, if you're a kid in the in, in Manchester or in the industrial north, well, how did Manchester, which was mm. known as Cottonopolis, become wealthy? Well, the world's cotton was coming there. And why did why did maybe your family move from the countryside to these new cities that were emerging? Well, it was probably because of some laws called enclosure, where the landowners were taking everybody's land. There was no land to subsist off, which people had done for centuries. And so really the only option was to move to work in the factories in these upcoming cities where all the resources were coming from around the empire. That's why it, it got established. But really the conditions in those factories were absolutely horrendous and you know children would work in them and i tell the stories of the children of the industrial revolution to the point that four five six year olds were going under spinning jennies and you know losing mm. their fingers yeah and i talk about the story of those children who re recount their experiences and that actually went to change labor laws for children so if children go to school today they can thank those children but the industrialists of the time complained to the government that they wanted to have child labour because otherwise they wouldn't be able to make profits. And I try and draw those threads to children today to understand what's happening with big businesses today as well. So what I'm trying to say is that there is some impact, whoever you are in Britain, because your family's story is likely to be impacted or the place you come from, or as you say, the, the wealth, all the buildings, all the kind of social structures, and everybody should find their story in it and understand how their life has been shaped by it. There's quite a lot of fragility, I think, that, that comes out when you start to talk about these subjects, because sometimes people feel like it's a criticism and they get defensive and they're like, well, you know, I didn't go and do the colonising, so, you know, what, why are you having a go at me about it kind of thing? And people can get quite defensive about it. Do you think that's the key to helping to get people to engage with it is to sort of talk about it in a, in a more general sense? What I realised when I started writing the book and I'd seen the statue of Colston fall and mm. watched how my children reacted to it and, you know, talked to other family members and observed, uh, you know, friends about their children and observed the national conversation that we're having is that Children aren't caught up in this fragility or identity or kind of flag waving or what might some call apology or some might even say kind of, you know, chest beating and, you know, doing Britain. They're not involved in any of that culture war at all. They're just kids and they're trying to make sense of the world that they live in and who they are. And the place that I've started in the book is literally called The Story of Now. Mm. And the strapline we use for it is this is not a history book. Clearly there is history in the book because you need to know what's going on. But really the conversation is about centering children and helping them to make sense of the world. Like why do businesses operate as they do? What should we do about climate change? How is consumption shaped this? What can we do to make sure technology is a force for good? What does it mean when we talk about labour and slavery and modern slavery and exploitation? You know, what does it mean to be British? You know, how can we use technology to solve a health pandemic? These are all things we can look back into the British Empire to look at. But children just don't care about the kinds of arguments that adults have about who owned the British Empire. You know, was it good or was it bad? You know, this this question that seems to 
occupy so much of our national conversation. My kids have never come home and gone, you know, today we discussed about the philosophical and moral rights of the Greek and Romans and whether they were good mm. or bad for having an empire. Nobody has that conversation. And yet we seem to think that's the conversa- the only conversation we can have about the British Empire. Like, was it good? Was it bad? Are you defending or are you mm. apologising? Children don't care about that. And that's what I wanted to get to. I wanted to be able to help them figure out this great world that we live in and how they can play their part in it. I didn't learn, apart from studying Ireland, at like GCSE level, apart from a little bit of that when you go sort of right back to the beginning. I didn't learn it in any substance until I got to university where I studied history. Because I know after the um, 2020 protests and the Colston statue, and there was a big push for kids to learn more about this stuff at school. Do they learn much about this at school? As far as I'm aware, it's not a mandatory part of the history syllabus. I mean, I went to school a long time ago as children. I'm sure we'll discover maybe even in the ancient era, they might say. But um, I only studied history till what would be today's year eight. Mm -hmm. I think we did a bit of the French Revolution and and a bit of the Russian Revolution and a bit of cavemen. I mean, that was kind of it. And so I come at this, this book not as an academic historian, but as somebody who's really interested in the question of who are we, what is our identity, what makes us who we are, and how do we have cultural conversation. So I think I come at it in quite a different way to a lot of the historians which are trying to, you know, do really important work about, you know, what really happened and shed light on some of the stories that we don't typically hear. But as far as I'm aware, it's not a mandatory part of the curriculum to talk about the British Empire, which, as I say, I find absolutely baffling because it's literally what has made our country. And I don't understand how we can have any conversations or have any just basic grounding as people who've gone through a a secondary school education. We just don't know that there was a British Empire that lasted 400 years and at its height covered around 25% of the world's landmass and 400 million people. I mean, that that just seems like basic facts, you know, hashtag facts that we should we should be giving our children as they go forward into the world. Because not only does that shape who we are, I think one of the things we really struggle with is understanding how other countries see who we are mm. and what our place is in that international community. And if we don't know our own history, then the chances of being able to talk to other countries and have those conversations is very much reduced. When I think about that, that like at the age of 14, you get to say, I'm not going to study history anymore. You have to choose between like history and geography. I mean, to me, that's insane. How is that a thing? Oh, you don't need to know about this anymore. That's fine. 14 year old. Also, I'm completely baffled that they don't cover any of this and they have like citizenship classes now don't they i think you get to talk i feel like we need a citizenship expert to to um, weigh in on that i think you get taught british values but then of course uh, you know some value that's um learning about british history maybe we should include that i don't know um you know some some might weigh in and say well who decided what the british values on the mm. curriculum would be i mean that's not an area that I would want to to pick up right now, but you can give your kids books to read, even if they're not if they're not studying it at school. Mm. You could read them, give them Story of Now, this really great book about the British Empire. I've heard that's just come out, but I, I do hope that it's introduced as a mandatory part of the curriculum. But that's not, you know, the prime advocacy that I'm doing here. Mm. I 
I just want children to understand who they are in the world that's shaped them so that we can start to have you know they can have the conversations that we seem to be struggling to have reading the book there was actually quite a lot of stuff in there and as someone with a history degree there was quite a lot of stuff in there that I didn't know did you find out anything that was particularly surprising to you oh my god I mean I I was as I was writing and researching the book I had some ideas of the the themes that I wanted to cover. So the book has a thematic approach rather mm. than a chronological approach. So there is a little introduction about, you know, what are empires and why do people have empires and why are we talking about empires and, and my story? And then there's a whole section called What Happened? And that's broken into themes. So I talk about, you know, big businesses like the East India Company yeah, and and how the relationship with the state and businesses um, developed and maybe what that means for today and the big businesses we have and the interactions they have with governments today. There is a section around enslaved people because clearly slavery was a huge part of how the empire became so wealthy. Uh, a section on um, consumer behaviour and commodities, about wealth and inequality and also about technology and how that developed through the empire. And Every day was like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. I'm learning something new. And I talk really openly in the book to kids about how this is all a work in progress for me as well. You know, every day I discover new things about it. I think one of the things that really made me pause for thought was discovering in detail the story of quinine, which was this medicine Mm. that would cure malaria. And so if we track back to the early days of the empire, one of the things that really created mixed feelings about people going out to set up colonies was that malaria was rife and there was every chance that within six weeks of arriving in a new place, you would be dead. And malaria was the cause of that. So people wanted to go out and seek new lands and have adventure and discovery and power and influence and so on, but they also didn't very much did not want to be dead. And what happened was there was a discovery that there was a tree in Peru called the Cinchona tree. And if you grounded up the bark and you drank that in water, that would prevent you from getting malaria. But these trees only grew in Peru and they were under the auspices of the government. Some French pharmacists discovered that you could extract quinine from the bark and that made it much more palatable. So it wasn't so disgusting to basically drink ground up tree in your water so they discovered this quinine but the peruvians were like this is our tree you can't have our tree you can buy the tree from us if you like and we'll send you the bark um the british didn't want to pay for this because it was quite expensive um and so a couple of british explorers snuck in and stole some saplings from the peruvians which as you can imagine the peruvians weren't very happy about as it happens fast forward most of those trees have now gone the British and actually the other European empires um, then set up their own, I guess, Cinchona plantations and started to create their own quinine. And that helped them to go out and colonise countries because now they would drink the quinine every day and stop themselves from getting malaria. Clearly, the quinine was also used to help lots of millions of other people stop dying from malaria too. So in that sense, it was a good thing, but it also helped spread the empire which was perhaps not such a great thing. And that's why we have G&T, because quinine was put into the tonic water and drunk every afternoon with your gin. And Winston Churchill famously said that he thought that G&T was more responsible for the spread of the empire than anything else, because 
you can now go out into the empire, drink your G&T every day and live um, as opposed to die of malaria. And so I found this story absolutely fascinating because, you know, G&T is so quintessentially British, um, we think of it, but it's very much connected to the empire. But on the one hand, it shows that technology can be a really fo- a powerful force for good because it stopped malaria at a time where we didn't have the kind of medications we have now. But on the other hand, it got stolen. But it was also an international collaboration. We needed the Peruvians and the French and the British to do it. And on the other hand, it helped establish you know, the British Empire. And so you know, the question I pose to readers, which I still grapple with, is how do you create that kind of medicine or that technology which can be really good for people? How do you create that international collaboration without kind of being driven by the mm. negative effects of it? And for kids who are 10 or 12, you know, the pandemic's been a huge part of their lives. You know, it's probably at the front of their minds how they start to, you know, think about tackling that in the future. And so that for me is the kind of complex nature of the British Empire stories that we're talking about. So how do we make sense of the world today and how do we show the complexity to kids so they can try and get the good bits of it and avoid the mistakes that were made before? There's something you said before I thought was interesting about British values, right? And also like the sort of notion that we used to be this great empire and we're super important in the world. And then I think there is this sort of tension that I think has grown post-Brexit, post-2016. Obviously, this is not just something that's happening in the UK. This weird division that we have is we're seeing it in other countries as well. So it's not an entirely British phenomenon. But I think that we struggle a bit now British people about what our place is in the world and what our kind of national identity is and there is obviously a camp that thinks that we are still this great superpower even though the evidence increasingly suggests that is not the case. I remember being in the States in like gosh when was it 2015 I think or 2014 I can't even remember when it was anymore and I was cycling around America and there was a general election and I was like, great, I'm in the States, like I'm going to take advantage of the time difference and I'm going to watch this play out. And there was nowhere I could do this. It wasn't on TV. No one was covering it. No one was interested in it. I spoke to one person like a few days later who said, oh, we were surprised that Cameron won it again. But no one was interested at all. And I thought, isn't this fascinating? Our perception of our standing in the world versus the reality of it. Do you think that we still have this, I don't know, delusions of grandeur? I think we definitely need to develop a sense of self-awareness of how we come across to other people and, and other countries around the world. That's not to say that I'm saying that we are better or worse than we think we are or that we should engage in self-flagellation. That is a separate discussion. But to be a successful player on a bigger field, you know, the key to that is understanding how other people see you. You know, you don't have to agree with the way they see you, but you have to at least be aware of it and why they have come to that. So as somebody who's travelled, you know, been lucky enough to travel around the world, what always astounds me is that you can jump in a cab in the Middle East or in the subcontinent or Southeast Asia And they can tell you their history and they can tell you, you know, what happened with the British. They can tell you what's happening in your politics. But we don't seem to have the same level of understanding and knowledge about ourselves. I mean, there's other side. You can jump into a taxi and they can quote you poetry, which is quite astounding as well, you know, because that's taught at school as part of their national curriculums. So that's, for me, the question is how 
how do other people see us? And actually, one of the things that I do right at the end of the book with kids is to actually, you know, I work in advertising. So one of the things I've done is set them a brand brief. If you were building brand Britain, how would you describe it? And I, I, I set them the challenge and I say, well, what does it mean to the people in the country today? And you have to think about all the various groups in Britain today. How do other people around the world see brand Britain and how do you come up with a strap line that can somehow encapsulate the aspiration of where Britain wants to go but acknowledges the baseline from which people already see it both domestically and internationally and those that those are things that we as adults also need to do that's why when it, when we say the book is 10 plus mm. I'm like all the plus people really need to read it as well <laughs> but maybe we can start with the kids because they you know they they are open to thinking about these questions and I think thinking about Britain as a brand and you know the history that does inform the country that we are is important and is valuable and it is what has shaped us so nobody is saying that we should deny what happened in the past it's just to understand that the place that we live in, the empire is hidden in plain sight around us. Mm. On that trip in America, I went to interview someone who's working in a school and they sent a pupil out to collect me and take me to, to the classroom she was teaching in. And um, this girl, she's probably about 13, but she's just like, quick fire, what are all my British person questions? So like, do you think Prince Harry will have a wedding as big as Prince <laughs> Williams? And I was like, I, I don't really know. And then she asked me, what do you do to celebrate the 4th of July? And I said, we, we don't celebrate it. Today is national she, morning. And she was like... Well, maybe it should be. She was aghast. She was just like, what? Why? I said, because we lost. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not something we generally celebrate. And she was like, oh, right. And I thought, I, I don't think you know what you're celebrating, do you? <laughs> like, I'm not sure you know the history behind the 4th of July, uh, to be fair. So... This is your fifth book. No, fifth book. I'm, it's not a fluke anymore. You, you're you're an actual author. Fantastic. Congratulations. Actual author, yeah. yeah. What's, what's next? Because also, I should say that your podcast has been nominated for a British Podcast Award as well, which is fantastic. The Shalina Show. Tell us a little bit about it. The Shalina Show was. Um, a news and current affairs podcast on Global Original, which the the first series ran from January to April, all still available to listen back to. If you Google the Shalina Show, it will come up. I wanted to make sure that we had voices and topics that we don't normally mm-hmm. cover in the news about news stories and having different perspectives on them. Because sometimes I watch the news and you have the commentators who are all discussing things and you think that's not relevant to anybody why aren't you talking about this particular angle on it why don't we have more women why don't we have people from different parts of the country i mean that's really important to me in this and in in the story of now which is we need to hear those kind of regional voices and also the working class voices and the dissenting voices so that was really interesting it's quite hard to do news um you know, to kind of uh, think about those different perspectives. And also one of the things I tried really hard to do was to make sure that the guests were from as many different backgrounds as possible. So over 12 episodes, I managed to make sure that more than half were women, um, including some professors and CEOs, which is great, properly credited, which doesn't usually happen. And also more than half were from minority ethnic backgrounds too. And we had them from around the country. So that was incredible to be able to bring that to air at the moment the story of now is just literally hot off the press last week and i want to make sure i have time to get children talking about that 
and thinking about the world around us. And then I'll probably just take a little bit of a breather so that, you know, have a think about what I want to do next. But, you know, I've written two books in two years, launched a major study for WPP about understanding minority ethnic consumers, been a primary carer for my parents, lost my mum last September. So I think I think I probably just need, I'm calling it a fallow period to allow the creative seeds to, to emerge again. Fair enough. That's, that's quite a lot going on in the space of two years. But I do hope that the Shalina Show will be back and look forward to chatting to you about whatever follows the fallow period. Shalina, where can we follow you to keep up to date with what you're doing and to find out about any events that you might have planned for the book? You can follow me on my socials. So on Twitter, I am love in headscarf. And on Instagram, I am love in a headscarf. But you can just Google Shalina Jan Mohammed and I will come up and you can read about my story and my book story of now and let me know what your story is. That's what I'm waiting to hear from people. It's all right, what stories do they have and what have they found and what conversations are they starting? Fantastic. Have you got any events planned? Like, are you going to sort of go out to schools and stuff and, and chat to kids? When the school terms kick in, we will start planning a school's tours. So if somebody wants me to come and talk to their school, I am very open to all those invitations. Children have such amazing stories, so I absolutely cannot wait to go in and talk to them about all these things that I've discovered. And there will be a series of events coming up, which I will post on all of my social media. Brilliant. OK. Well, Shalina, as ever, it's been wonderful to talk to you thank you very much for joining me thank you for having me standard issue for all women